Now, I wonder if you uh, could recognise any of the following slogans. I'll see how many of them. See how many of them you do. Careless talk costs lives. Keep mum. She's not so dumb. Tittle tattle lost the battle. Don't take the squander bug when you go shopping. To dress extravagantly in wartime is worse than bad form. It's unpatriotic. A clear plate means a clear conscience. Make do and mend. Cover your hair for safety, your Russian sister does. Coughs and sneezes, spread diseases. Keep calm and carry on. Back them up. We can do it. Dig for victory. Dig on for victory. Forward to victory. Now looking around briefly, it may be that uh, some, of the, some of you may recognise those from the first time round. Uh, some of them, of course, have become stock phrases, haven't they? Part of, part of our language. And some of you may have guessed that these are all slogans from war posters. Those war posters give us a fascinating window into a world 70-odd years ago in great turmoil where the authorities at the time were desperately trying to remind people that there was indeed a war on. They were desperately trying to keep those people their morale high, to keep them focused on the war effort and keep them confident of victory. Now I begin that way because I'm hoping it will remind us that something very similar but actually far more ambitious is going on in the book of Revelation. The seven churches John is writing to at the beginning of the book are deeply in need of a similar wartime focus and encouragement. I think Paul has been very helpfully reminding us of this week by week in this series. So in the church in Ephesus, they're, they're flagging. In Smyrna, they're staring death in the face. In Pergamum, they're indulging sh- themselves shamelessly. In Thyatira, they're being deceived by a traitor in their midst. In Sardis, they need to wake up. In Philadelphia, they have very little strength left. In Laodicea, they seem to be occupied with making money for themselves, as if there wasn't a war at all, as if it were peacetime. What I want to persuade you of this morning is that in Fullwood today, we are similarly in need of being reminded that there's a war on. And I want to persuade you that in Revelation chapter 6, we have a a God-given means to wake us up to that. Now, you may well be wondering how I can do that, uh, given that the contents of this chapter are, well, they're just so bizarre, aren't they? But one of the things I hope you will see this morning is that although Revelation chapter 6 may seem kind of new and strange, especially if you're not familiar with this kind of writing, uh, there's actually nothing new here. The sorts of things we're going to see in this part of the vision are actually things Jesus told his disciples quite plainly about before his death and resurrection. I've put some examples from Matthew's Gospel uh, on your handout. Just glance through some of those. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. They will kill you and hate you. He said about himself, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. He said to all who will be true disciples, you need to lose your life to find it. And he warned them, there will be wars Rumours of wars, famines, earthquakes. You will be persecuted and killed. There will be false prophets. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And all that really happens in Revelation chapter 6 is that those things are recast, if you like. They're recast as a vision. 
a vision which Jesus brings to us through John, the human author of this book, a vision in which the faithfulness Jesus called for before is now shown as endurance, endurance in a great cosmic battle over which he, the slaughtered lamb, is fully in control. But actually even in that description of a battle or a war is nothing new. Uh, The battle of the war between uh, the Lord's anointed, that's Jesus, and the Lord's enemies, is not new, as we were hearing from Psalm 2 a little earlier. So we shouldn't get phased by this. Um, I was was told once the story of some students at an American seminary, and they came across a janitor who was reading the book of Revelation in one of his breaks. And they shook their heads, as people do, saying, Ooh, Revelation, very difficult, very tricky. Uh, But quite rightly, the janitor disagreed. It's not difficult at all, he said. In fact, it's quite simple. Jesus wins. There's a war on, and Jesus wins. Let's take a look at the first eight verses of this chapter. Seals 1 to 4. Don't you know there's a war on? That is, the tribulation of the world that we're experiencing all the time is the tribulation of a world at war with its God. Now, as you can see, as we glance through these verses, there's a very simple, repeated pattern here. Four times the Lamb opens one of the seals and the scroll. You can see the first time in verse 1. John says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. The Lamb, if you were here last week, uh, you'll remember, is Jesus, the one who was slain like a Lamb, but now stands at the centre of the throne room of heaven. The scroll, you may also remember from last week, contains a vitally important message for the churches John is concerned for. A vitally important message for us too. That's going to come later in the book. So the step-by-step breaking of the seven seals on that scroll is building up to that revelation, preparing the way for that message. So four times the Lamb opens one of the seals on the scroll. Then four times, one of the living creatures who's been worshipping around the throne cries out, Come! And four times, a horse and a rider is sent out. And each of the four times, I think we can summarise what they do as waging war against a rebellious world. And in waging war against a a world that's rebelled against its, its maker and creator, rebelled against the source of life, well, what are they doing? They're squeezing Life, and they're administering and bringing death. So the first rider, verse 2, goes out as a conqueror. The second rider, verse 4, is, quote, given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay one another. The third rider brings an economic squeeze. Uh, Verse 6, inflating the prices of basic necessities, a quarter of a wheat, that's not much, for a day's wages. The fourth writer summarises the effect of what's going on in general and, and brings quite simply death. Verse 8, its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. Hades being the place of death, the, the underworld. Now, it may be that John wants us perhaps to see the first of those riders as, as Jesus himself. There are, there are a number of details there and arguments that, that point in that direction. However, even if that's right, that doesn't seem to be what he wants to emphasise here. The emphasis seems to be more on Jesus in heaven, as the Lamb in heaven, 
But as the Lamb in heaven, he is waging war in a world that is conspiring against God and that he is calmly in control. And the imagery of these verses, strange as it may seem at first, gives colour and energy to that picture. Literally colour, in fact. The colours of the horses are, in fact, the colours of war. White suggests the seeking of victory. Red suggests blood. Black suggests death. And the pale colour that you see there in verse 8 is actually literally a greyish green. The colour of a rotting corpse. The horses themselves were the principal military weapons of the day. The riders are carrying the weapons of of war. You can certainly see that in verse 2. A bow in verse 2 and a sword in verse 4. Admittedly, the scales being held by the third rider don't uh, quite fit that pattern, but, you know, swing one of those fast enough and hard enough, you can do a lot of damage. What's more, this is a world war. As we've seen in previous weeks, the number four in Revelation seems to represent the earth, the whole earth in its entirety, as in the common expression, the four corners of the earth. You may also remember from a couple of weeks ago that the four living creatures here who who are summoning the horses and the riders represent the creatures of the world, the greatest of the creatures of the world. But this is the Lamb's War. It's a war initiated and controlled by the Lamb. It's he who opens the seals. But notice the distinction here, the distance, if you like, between the calm control of the Lamb in heaven and the moral madness and evil and mayhem of the battle on earth. There's a distinction between those two things. He breaks the seals, yes. He sets things in progress, yes. But it's the creatures who summon the riders and the riders who wage the battle. Now one consequence of the Lamb's control here is that this is also a limited war. Uh, You can see that in verse 6. You can still get wheat if you've got enough money and you can also get and there's also plenty of oil and wine if you can afford it Uh, more explicitly in verse 6 the authority of death and Hades is limited to one quarter of the earth in other words this is not a complete destruction this is not the final end of everything but we don't really need to get all of this, all those little details in order to get the basic message here. Every part of these verses is working together to scream a very simple twofold message to the seven churches and to us. The first part of the message is quite simply, don't you know that there's a war on? And the second part of the message builds on that and adds, but the lamb is perfectly and calmly in control. Now, it's important to realise, I think, that this war is, is not something due to happen in the distant future. Uh, war, economic struggle, death from all sorts of different causes. These are the stuff of our everyday experience. We were praying about some of them earlier. In other words, this would have been immediately relevant to the seven churches and should be immediately relevant to us too. Uh, for the churches, not only would it have helped them to understand the death and carnage around them, it would have woken them up to the true, true reality of the world that they were living in. What did they think they were doing in Laodicea, for example? You know, trying to protect themselves with wealth or trying to pander to themselves with riches in the midst of this kind of war. 
Likewise for us, I think, um, if you were at the last prayer meeting, you'd, you'd have known from, from Paul that uh, in a number of books, the American pastor, uh, John Piper, promotes the idea of what he calls a wartime mindset. And that, I think, is very consistent with what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 6. Um, this is how he puts it in his book, uh, Don't Waste Your Life. He says this, Sometimes I use the phrase wartime lifestyle or wartime mindset. It tells me and reminds me that there's a war going on between the world, in the world, between Christ and Satan, between truth and falsehood, belief and unbelief. I need to hear that message again and again, he says. Because I drift into a peacetime mindset as certainly as rain falls down and flames go up. I'm wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what other, others love. I, I start to call earth now home. Before you know it, I'm calling luxuries, needs, and using my money just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't much think about people perishing. Missions and unreached peoples drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do, not to what God can do. It is a terrible sickness. And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again towards a wartime mindset. So we thank God for John Piper helping us with that. Much more, though, we thank God for the John who wrote the book of Revelation for us. Because these verses couldn't be clear in reminding us that there is that war on. We are in the midst of a great war. But what can we say more positively than that? Well, this is where breaking the fifth seal kicks in. There's a war on, so, seal 5, this is verses 9 to 11, patiently pursue the war effort. Now, once we've realised that we are in a war, we need to know what is it that's going to contribute to the war effort? What is that thing? Well, what I hope we're going to see from these verses is that the sole purpose given here for the Lamb continuing this war is to add to the number of people prepared to die for their testimony to God. Let me read from verse 9, and we'll see this building up. When he, that's the lamb, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? It's a very striking moment. You see, we might respond to the control that the lamb has exhibited in limiting the judgments of the first, in those first four seals, by saying, phew, thank goodness for that. But that's not what these people in heaven are saying. Uh, now, who are they? Look at verse 9 again. They, these are people who have been slain defending and confessing the truth about God, just like the person they're following, of course, Jesus. And what they are saying is, why on earth are you holding back? In other words, they're crying out, not for a limited war, but for complete justice. Now that in itself is pause for thought, uh, I think, and I'm sure that kind of crying out for God's complete justice should be much more readily on our lips. But the really striking thing here is the answer they get. Verse 11. 
Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. The white robe is probably an assurance to them that in their alignment to Jesus they can be sure of that future victory. But then they're also given a reason for the delay. And it's this, the purpose of the delay is the completion of the number of those losing their lives for Jesus and the gospel. Now, for those under the altar, that just means, I guess, being a little more patient. It means waiting. But for us, for us overhearing what they are being told, this changes everything, doesn't it? This sets up what our wartime focus should be. Uh, And if you've perhaps been worried or or turned off by all all the kind of warlike, militaristic imagery in this chapter, well, grasp this. Grasp that the weapon wielded by the lamb and his followers in this war, well, it's not a sword or a bow or a gun or a bomb. Look at verse 9 again. The weapon, uh, if you can call it that, that these people died fighting with, that weapon was their testimony to God. And what matters is building up the number of people prepared to die for that. Uh, You may have heard about life coaches, even if uh, most of us here, I suspect, would never be able to afford one. Uh, Life coaching, according to the publicity, is a future-focused practice with the aim of helping clients determine and achieve personal goals. But what happens, according to John, When we have Jesus as a life coach, well, I think he's showing us here that our goals should be completely reorientated around the purpose of this delay in the war. First, of course, we're going to take every opportunity to speak of God and our allegiance uh, to what he is doing through Jesus. But, But actually, it transforms everything, doesn't it? Suddenly, everything else we do can now have real value, real value as a testimony to God. My career, for example, has precious little value otherwise, if this is true. You know, it's precious, precious little value as a, if it's just a means of self-promotion. And the wealth and money it generates, as we've seen, is precious little protection in this kind of war. But if I can make my work a testimony to promote the glory of God, now that's a proper goal. That's a true goal. Uh, even the smallest details of what I do can play a role in that working carefully, peacefully, diligently, honestly, lovingly, clearly because of our allegiance to God, those things are a testimony to him. I guess you could say the same thing about any other area of our lives where we like to set goals for ourselves. And in this, like Jesus, we express our allegiance to what God is doing, even if it means being mocked for doing so, as it surely will. And like Jesus, we do it even if it means suffering for doing it. And like Jesus, we do it even if it means dying for it. But of course, Jesus knows us very well. And he knows that we're only going to do all this if we can be absolutely confident of the final outcome. And so he opens the sixth seal. We patiently pursue the war effort. Seal 6, confident of victory. 
Now, it's worth noting at this point that what John sees and hears when the sixth seal is broken doesn't finish at the end of chapter 6. It continues all the way through to the end of chapter 7. And it's actually only, you glance across, it's only at the beginning of chapter 8 that the seventh seal is broken. And in that space, what John is going to give us is basically two pictures of the victory of the Lamb. First, we're going to see the defeated opponents of God under the wrath of the Lamb. That's to the end of chapter 6. That's what we're going to look at this time. Then we see and hear about the victorious army of God, saved from the great tribulation in the world to serve him forever. That's chapter 7. We're going to look at that a bit more closely next week. So we're going to look at, uh, I guess, just one side of God's victory this time. It's, It's the more negative side. And if we glance through these verses at the end of chapter 6, I think we'll quickly pick up that this is indeed a picture of the final defeat of God's enemies. Perhaps not yet completely destroyed. Uh, John is going to show us that later in the book. But certainly on the verge of defeat here. In other words, unlike the first four seals, that this is much more about the future and how we can be guided by a vision of the future, the final outcome of the war that we're caught up in. The imagery in verses 12 to 14 certainly suggests something global. Uh, So verse 14, the sky splits and shatters as it's rolled up like a scroll. Every mountain and island is removed. It's pretty global, isn't it? That might not be enough in itself to clinch it. But look at verse 15. This is a comprehensive defeat. Not just the kings and leaders, but every slave and every free man who's been conspiring against God. And when it comes to it, they would rather be crushed by the mountains than face the wrath of the Lamb. It's a very curious little phrase, isn't it? The wrath of the Lamb. Bizarre phrase, even. How could a Lamb be dangerous? Uh, There's a scene towards the end of the film, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I'm kind of looking around and wondering how many people know what I'm talking about here. Anyway, I'll tell you about this. Um, There's a scene at the end of this film where Arthur and his knights uh, come to the cave of the evil monster, Kari Banog. There he is, someone cries. Where, says Arthur, behind the rabbit? It is the rabbit. Oh, go on, Boris, says Arthur. Chop his head off. Right, says Boris. One rabbit's shoe coming right up. But of course, with one squeak. Boris is slaughtered, and so are the other knights who dare challenge the wrath of the rabbit. Now, uh, don't for a moment think that they're mentioning that in any way endorsing that film, um, or even think it's that funny on the whole. Nevertheless, there is a kind of dark humour in that little phrase, isn't it? The wrath of the lamb. It's not miles away, not a million miles away from Monty Python. But it's also that what we see here in Revelation 6 is like that but far more sober. So the rulers of the world have looked upon the man Jesus. They looked upon him and said, Son of God, what? Behind that man? You must be joking. Piece of cake. Easy pickings. And as that, as Isaiah puts it, they led him away like a lamb to the slaughter. But through his death and resurrection, that lamb becomes more powerful than they could have possibly imagined. He now holds, John has told us, the keys, in his hands, the keys of death 
and Hades. To those who follow him and overcome, he will give the right to eat from the tree of life. And he has also shown himself by going through that death and being raised worthy to break the seals on this scroll, as we've seen this morning, unleashing death and judgment throughout the world. And from the wrath of the lamb they slaughtered, there is no hiding place. And that, for the moment, is where we leave it. Uh, It's an unsettling picture to finish on, I guess, and I'll grant you that. But this is a, a deliberately unsettling chapter. And I do hope that as you embark upon the coming week that you've been sufficiently unsettled to view the events around you in a very different way. So as we hear the news of war and economic scarcity in the world, as death rears its ugly head around us, as it has for us as a church family this this last week, uh, the death that rears its ugly head, however much we might try and ignore it or suppress it, well, let's not be deceived by any of that or thrown off course or unduly surprised. Remember, there's a war on. But be assured, be assured from the picture we've been looking at this morning, the lamb is calmly in control. And be assured, the only reason he's holding back in this war is to add to the number prepared to testify to the truth about him, even if that leads to death. Be assured that that does give a purpose to life. It does give something that we can live for over the coming week, even to die for. And be assured, his future victory is absolutely secure. For those who have taken their stand and gathered against the Lord and and think that his son, his anointed, can be disposed of like a lamb being slaughtered, well, be assured, from the coming wrath of the lamb, there is no hiding place. Let's pray together.